I walk into a coffee shop in Prague. People are sitting around old wooden tables dotted with plates of coffee and cake. I find a table, put down my things, order at the counter, and go stand in line for the bathroom. There's a few people ahead of me, and there's a tall, older woman right in front of me, wearing a heavy suede coat. Our blonde hair is tied up in a bun. She presses into the key code and gets it wrong. Then she tries again. Unable to open the door, she turns to me and starts speaking in rapid-fire check. I stare at her, a little scared and confused, like she just asked me to solve Reinman's hypothesis. The wheels in my head start to turn as I slowly add together a sentence in my brain. But before I can get no moviti chesky out of my mouth, she badgers me again, more intensely this time. To be honest, the Czechs don't have the most polite tones to my American ears, and it came off as a little aggressive. Their cold manners don't melt in the spring air. She looks at me intensely. Why aren't I responding to her? Am I mute? Maybe dumb? Then the words in her mother tongue slowly tumble out of my mouth, like I had vomited a bunch of marbles. I don't speak Czech. Do you speak English? Her face drops. She knows who I am. She puffs, rolls her eyes, and turns away like I duped her. Everyone here in the shop, in this city, in this country looks like me. But there's an invisible barrier, a wall that they don't see until I open my mouth. I actually am Czech, which probably throws them off, but my great-grandfather came to America a long time ago. The rest of my family is from every other blonde-haired, blue-eyed nation. England, Ireland, Germany, Scotland, Hungary, and Norway. I'm everything you would expect out of a white woman. I drink almond milk lattes without sugar. I have very active and organized Pinterest boards. And I cry in public. Come at me. And being raised in upstate New York, everyone looked like me. There was very little diversity, and I didn't have any real juxtaposition to pick apart who I was or what I came off as. Until I started traveling. While vagabonding through Europe, many locals believed I was one of them. I would get asked directions in German, be flirted with in Swedish, and yelled at in Hungarian. To which I would just give them back blank stares. Then the Inquisitor would typically pause, recalculate, and would speak to me in flawless English. I would politely smile and resent the American public school system for not prioritizing languages in its curriculum. However, I was no longer considered a white woman. I was an American. And the social clout that comes with this title looms large in the eyes of Europeans, depending on who our president is. Now I was bombarded with questions. Why are Americans so fat and dumb? You're not. Does each child have a gun? Is your uncle a cowboy? Why are you causing so much war? Is your life like how I met your mother? It was the first time I had to start explaining my own nation to outsiders, and I started to see it from their perspective. Although I always thought I was critical of my country's culture and politics, I started to question it more now. And the more I traveled, the more I saw my identity shift. In Asia, I was invisible. In the Middle East, I was a money bag. And in Latin America, my feminine wiles had me harassed on the streets every day. I felt like a frog trying to cross a four-lane highway, hopping back and forth between lanes just to try to make it to the other side. I had to start answering a slew of questions about who I was and what my place was in the world. What did it mean to be me? How were other people's assumptions influencing how they treated me or made me think about myself? Parts of me were exposed that were easy to ignore at home. But once I shattered the mirror of my identity, all I could do was pick up the pieces and gingerly analyze each one, trying not to cut myself, but reorganizing who I actually am. Today on the episode, we're having a bit of an identity crisis. We will discuss how locals treat us once we get off the plane, and how do we explain ourselves to new people when we're thousands of miles from home. We will talk to travelers who have had major identity shifts, discovered new sides of themselves, and peeled off the labels that the world has pressed on them. Start unpacking, we have a lot of baggage to go through. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go.
I'm not the only one who's had to deal with the expectations of what I look like. To Michelle Carlo, a New York City storyteller, this identity question wasn't one she dealt with when she was abroad, but was actually one that troubled her her whole life. Growing up, her family has always accused her of not being Puerto Rican enough. And it wasn't until she left the country she was able to define herself on her own terms. This is a live story told at a New York City storytelling event with an enthusiastic audience. Here is her story. Is anybody else here besides me a native New Yorker, born and raised in New York City? If so, I can't see you. If so, like, make a noise. Why? Wow. Like, very few of you. Okay, well, I'm going to tell the story anyway. Okay, if you were born and raised in New York City, like me, and you're a vieja, like kind of old, like me, you may remember that when you were young, it was, and it seems so weird now, but it was totally acceptable for people to ask you, what were you? What are you? Which means that, where are you from? Like where your parents or your grandparents and your ancestors are from. And you would hear this all the time, especially at a party when you were like in your teens or early 20s. People would say, oh, hi, uh, my name is blah, blah, blah. What's your name? Where are you from? And then the answer would be, well, I'm Italian and Irish. I'm Polish and Greek. I'm Jamaican and Chinese. And then I'd be cringing in the corner because I know my turn would be next. And when I would have to answer truthfully that I was Puerto Rican, the answer would be, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Well, I don't believe it. Well, that's okay, because most of the time, my family doesn't either. <laughs> because, you see, I am the light-skinned, freckle-faced, red-headed, red sheep of my loud and proud Puerto Rican family. I am the one that doesn't speak Spanish very well. I am the one that doesn't dance salsa very well. I am the one that doesn't do anything Latin very well. Which is fine, which is fine for me. I mean, I, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's their problem, not mine, but then it becomes my problem when I'm criticized and blah, blah, blah. And when I tell my family that I'm going to visit a friend that lives in Paris, the answer is, well, why are you going to France for? They don't, they don't like Americans there. To which my answer was, well, if nobody could tell I'm Puerto Rican in New York City, who the hell is going to think I'm American in Paris? <laughs> and then I got my passport. And when I saw the navy blue cover with the gold embossed eagle that said United States of America, it kind of affected me a bit. I mean, of course I knew that I was a citizen of the United States of America, but it really didn't hit me on a visceral level that I was not just a red-headed New Yorican from New York City, but part of something much bigger. So in other words, it didn't dawn on me that I was actually a citizen of the United States of America until I left the damn country. And when I arrived at the Gaulle Airport in Paris, my friend Nadia met me with the keys to her apartment, a map of the Paris metro, a list of things for me to do and see, because her job had called her unexpectedly to a conference in some other city, Lyon or something, Dijon, Lyon, or oh, 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 oh. and she was going to be gone for four of the eight days I was going to be in Paris. So I was going to be there by myself. And this is when I realized that the 50 words or so of French that I memorized, because you know I wanted to try to speak the language, but these words would mean nothing when spoken with an accent so horrendous. It was like a cross between Carmen Miranda and Chewbacca. <laughs> a squawk so horrible the words were stripped of all meaning. So after the first few times I tried to speak French and people looked at me as if I was insane, I decided I was going to just speak as little as possible and be silent which is for me, as you could probably tell, would be very friggin' hard. <laughs> so for the next four days, I went through Nadia's list. Oh my God, it was so awesome. I went to the catacombs and Le Hall and Le Marais and Sacre-Cœur and Le Musée Rodin and Versailles and Montmartre and other things I can't freaking pronounce. And then 
Nadia came back and she took me to a restaurant. She, she wanted to make up for not being there. We went to a place, I think it might even have a Michelin star, oh my God. Like in the Latin Quarter that was like, you know, fancy, fancy cooking. And we sit down to order and I hear just two words that I never thought that I would hear in Paris. Bud Light. And I turn around, it's a group of older couples, they look like husbands and wives in like the late 50s, early 60s, and one of the men was haranguing the waiter as to why he could not get a cheeseburger and a Bud Light. And the waiter said, well, if you want that cheeseburger, you could go to the McDonald's. To which the man said, I'll tell you something, Garcon, we didn't, we didn't come 5,000 miles to go to no McDonald's. And then I watched as the waiter said, and walked over to the bar back and mimed this. <laughs> now, you don't need to speak English, Spanish, or my combination new language that I had created with Spanish and French and English called Spench <laughs> to know what hopping, of, what miming a hopping spit in your hand means. So I, I, I just, I, I just got, I just got infuriated. I was just like, well, I, I, I gotta do something. But then I looked at, at this group of Americans, and I realized that if they knew what I was, they very well may have thought of me as less than. They may have thought of me as just a spick. But then again, I, I thought of all the times that I wasn't enough either. I thought of the times that I was too Puerto Rican, not Puerto Rican enough. The times that I got stabbed at a race riot in high school, they tried to set my hair on fire in middle school. I thought of all the times where it was all against me, and I was like, no, no, we're American. No, I have to do something. So I get up, my friend then is like, what are you, fool? Which means crazy. And I go right to the waiter, and I just said to him, no, I, I, I heard what you said, and I saw what you did, and you cannot spit in their food. And he just looks at me like, why do you care? What are you? Where are you from? And all my life I had suffered that damn question. And there wasn't time for me to explain to this man what uh, the island of Puerto Rico meant to the Caribbean and to the United States who thinks we're just a handkerchief that you just blow your nose with it and you throw it away because we don't mean anything to you. Well, I can't tell him about how we're all just mixed in the history of the conquered and the conqueror and how we try to live in harmony. There wasn't time for any of that. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say to this man. And he says to me, what are you? Where are you from? And I just blurted out the only thing I could say and think. I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah. And Le Garçon looks at me and says, ho, ho, ho. Brooklyn is not America. But I will not spit in their food. So I go back to Nadia, and I found out that she has ordered uh, la pen in moutarde and anglais cheval avec pommes frites, which I find out is bunny and mustard sauce and horse steak with french fries cooked in horse fat. And it was the best bunny and horse I ever ate in my life. And from that moment forward also, whenever someone asks me where I am from, the answer is now and forever, Brooklyn. Yes, I am. Because, as we now know, is certainly not America. Yeah. Thank you. Traveling helped Michelle settle the question that has always plagued her. And like the great performer she is, she was able to improvise her identity on the spot. How we're perceived is very much out of our control. We have to carry the body that we are given and learn how to adapt to it. But I think that people who are the most comfortable with themselves are the ones who know how to take control and define their identity on their own terms. Tyo Roxon is also someone who's had to hopscotch around his identity. Growing up as a third culture kid, Tayo has always been unsure as to who he is because he's a walking assortment of cultures. He's born in Nigeria, but went to American schools and has been raised in places where no one looks like him, from Sweden to Vietnam. 
His life has been defined by constant misperceptions and projections. Here's his story. So a third culture kid, for those uh, who don't know, basically refers to people who spent the formative periods of their lives outside of the parents' cultures. That's anyone that sort of grew up, you know, as an army brat, a diplo brat, you know, or they just found they had parents that basically had careers that had them moving around to different parts of the world. And what happens is you find yourself operating in the middle a lot. You're in a nuanced world because... In my case, I am a Nigerian who grew up in five countries and four continents. But when I first moved and became cognizant of my new environment, I remember being this skinny Nigerian kid with a thick Nigerian accent, a French-speaking country, an American international school, going through puberty. Whether I knew what my identity was, people sort of gave me clues about what they thought my identity was. That that's kind of what happens when you're, you know, a TCK or or, or someone that that grows up that way. My dad was a diplomat. That's why we moved. And, you know, I, I remember as early as 10 years old, someone pointed out to me, hey, your hair is weird, right? It curls in a different ball. Uh, and so I ran home and I was like, mom, what was, you know, can I make my hair straight? And, and she had to tell me that the texture of, of a black man's hair is different. And I, that, that's when I started to really understand what it's like to be black and to be Nigerian. And, you know, I, and I was sort of, trying to appeal to a European standard of, of beauty. And I was like, I want my hair straight like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And my mom really started to tell me, hey, you've got to like yourself. But that was me at 10. And then that led me to try and hide myself or figure it out. Tayo started to realize that his identity carries a lot of assumptions with it. When I lived in Vietnam... My brothers and I used to get followed. We used to get followed everywhere we went. <laughs> well, you know, it initially was, it was a little interesting to see that, but we would get followed and then we would, would pause to look back and then they would stop as well. But over time, we got to see that it's because we were the first black people that many of them had seen. And so to them, it was a very foreign concept, you know, and they started, and my dad is taller than me. Whenever he would come out, they would mutter, Will Smith, Kobe Bryant, you know, any of the big, what, whatever you saw on TV. And so Vietnam definitely opened my eyes to the idea that the world is bigger than many people um, even realize. And that was one where, you know, any representation of someone you see on TV is immediately related to their, their experience with that color. So to them, any celebrity, and they've seen Black people based on TV. So it's athletes and and entertainment. And so that must be, you must be Kobe or you must be that. So it's, and it plays into, you know, what we do and where stereotypes come and where, you know, how we group things in our mind. And then I remember coming back from the international American international school and being back in Nigeria, but this time I had a very international slash American accent, but I'm only Nigerian and I was perceived as African American even though I'd never been to America at the time. And so there was this dilemma of not being Nigerian enough. <laughs> a lot of my Nigerian classmates didn't necessarily see me as Nigerian. And that's a very interesting place to be because you feel like you want in, but not everybody feels like you want in. You know, I felt very insecure about a lot of things. And, you know, when I was younger, I used to feel like I had to prove that to people. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm this, what are you trying to say? I, I'm, I'm proven. Look, I listen to the music. I know the food. I know, you know what that sounds like. When I go home, I'm perceived as American, 100%. That, that is the actual fact. And, I, and I'm not an American, by the way. After dealing with all of this before he graduated high school, Tayo had to take control of his story earlier than most. You know, by the time I was 17, I, I made a pact to myself to, to stop trying to fit into everybody's idea of who I was and to just accept me. That was right before college. The key to accepting me was I needed to just understand that being who I was meant that they're very different versions, that I can be many things at the same time. I can be Nigerian one day. I could be an international this day. I could jive with this crowd, jive with that crowd, and that was okay. I could be a jock and a nerd at the same time because I played sports and I was very, I've always been very um, nerdy and into books. And so, you know... I had all those, you know, identity shifts, but um, 
I think the moment of growth for me really came when I was 17 and I decided that I was just going to be every one of those identities at the same time. As someone who struggled with his identity his whole childhood, I asked him how we should be defining ourselves. It was very important for me to do that. That, that was the first step because the older you get, you realize that if you place your identity in other people's thoughts, right, it becomes a very dangerous, slippery slope because you start to lose who you are. And I, I just got frustrated with each move, having to place my identity with what other people thought of me, but then having to deal with the intersectionality of the, the culture as well. Like it's a different culture. And so that can be very exhausting. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to show up as who I am and be unapologetically that person. If, if it's corny, it's corny. If it's this, it's that. And initially it was uncomfortable with some people because I'm, you know, I'm a walking contradiction. I say that all the time. I, I look one way and I might do certain things that someone might look like me would do, but then I surprise people with whatever comes in my mouth. I'm like, what? You? No. I've come to enjoy that a lot just because I like to challenge people's frame of thinking. I'm like, oh yeah, you, you didn't think that, huh? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me just continue to confuse you. Your identity can be a jail or it can be uh, somewhat freeing, but it depends on what you define your identity as. If you define your identity as who you truly are, then it's, it's a very free feeling. Like if you define your identity as maybe society standards, your parents' standards, then that's where it becomes a prison. But you're not going to know your identity unless you, you experience life. <laughs> One, you get to know what you like, what you don't like, and then you get to unapologetically embrace what you like and stand up for that. Tayo found that his struggles throughout childhood are something that he can gain strength and purpose from. He spun straw into gold and has turned his plate into a career path. He's now able to critique the systems that cage us and how travel can help us break out of them. As, as I grew older, the better I, I appreciated all the moves and the travels because it ultimately leads to the career that I have right now. I mean, if you know, we're looking at a time where people don't try to understand different people and simultaneously people are benefiting from the diversity. And I, you know, I always call myself a cultural translator because I've always been translating cultures as a kid. And now that's what I love to do. Everything that I was, you know, made fun of as a kid is necessary now. And so if I don't embrace it, I, I feel like I'm not tapping into my calling. I, I looked at the trends, I looked at my background and I started to tell my stories more and more. And I was like, okay, this is a real problem in the world. People don't really know how to interact with people that are different or something that's, a, that's foreign to them. Based on my stories and the research that I've done, I wanted to position myself as a problem solver there. The fact is we're all paradoxes, we're all contradictions. And the sooner we embrace that, the better we'll be. I think we live in a very nuanced world that's governed by binary systems. So we always forget that we are nuanced. We're not one, just all one way or another. And so the world is so used to, you know, very tribalistic as humans, you know, grouping people into what they're used to and what they're comfortable. And, you know, people are quick to say, if you have this, this, and this, you must be this, so you must be that. And then if you do something that's out of the ordinary, like what? So, and it's, it's, a, it's very much in the way we, we teach the, I mean, you vote Republican or Democrat, you choose this or that, and it's, it's how we grow up. But the reason why I love what you do, especially when you communicate with strangers and you travel, is because the more you travel, the more you discover yourself because you're forced to be in many places outside of your comfort zone. And when you're outside of your comfort zone, your traditional self shows up. Like, oh, I'm lost. I don't speak the language. What do I do? You then tap into all the things you've learned or subconsciously taken on. And then you might discover ugly things about yourself. Or things you like about yourself. You could, you could discover that, oh, I lash out when things don't go my way. Oh, I think, I, I think less of people from this country I should watch out. Oh, I think less of myself. You just discover so many things about yourself when you put yourself in uncomfortable positions. And that point of discovery holds all these clue to, clues to who you are. You know, we tend to want to stay comfortable, but the best things exist out of the comfort zone. I remember working for my dad one summer day and listening to a podcast. I don't remember which one. 
I was in the midst of college and really struggling with what I wanted out of life. I wanted to do so many different things. Travel, dance, philosophize, write, meditate, run. As I was listening and getting frustrated with how many different poles I had at once, a guest on the episode quoted Walt Whitman, who said, do I contradict myself? So I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And it was such a freeing moment because I realized that I am a big personality and a little body, but I'm also allowed to change and grow. And I'm not alone in that feeling. It's so interesting how a shift in location can also move something more within us. It's not just our bodies that move, but also our minds. It gives us room to experiment, to play, and find what we might actually like that isn't given to us at home. Vanessa Valeria, the creator of the podcast Singling, found that freedom when she left home for the first time. I had a wonderful boyfriend. We dated for almost five years. And my ideal life was that we were going to get married, have kids, and live like a very traditional linear life in the Dominican Republic. And then we broke up, and I really thought that my life was going to end. I could not stop crying every day. I was super depressed, and the my country, my city is very small, so everyone just knows everyone, and wherever you go, you bump into the same people. And I was bumping into my ex-boyfriend, and then he started dating a friend of mine, and now they're married and have three kids and they're like the perfect couple. And now I'm over that. I mean, it's been a while. Thank God I am over that. But um, that would suck. But uh, I felt that I really needed to leave. And I started looking for things to do outside my country. And I enrolled. I applied to a, to go do a master's in Barcelona and I got accepted. I didn't have any money. So I took a loan and I'm like, Daddy, see you later. And I left. It's just, you have to understand that I came from literally a bubble. The Dominican Republic is like very little. You always do the same thing. You eat the same food. But I am so thankful that something in my body told me, get out. Once Vanessa settled into Barcelona, she started soaking a calloused layer of skin hardened on her from years of being in the DR. Well, I in Barcelona, I already had friends that were also studying, which was one of the reasons why I thought Barcelona. Like, you know, I could, it's going to be far away and it's going to be different, but I will have a friend of two or two. My roommate, one of my roommates in Barcelona was one of my best friends since when I was a kid. So that helped a little bit. But then very quickly, which is, She had her group of friends and very quickly I had my own group of friends and because I went to school that was international and there was people from so many different parts of the world that I, I can't even explain you how amazing it was for me to learn about all of, all of these different cultures. I never even imagined that I was going to have a close friend from Taiwan. I... I, and I have been to most of my friends' places because we're still in touch and very close. So it was a very eye-opening experience for me. I mean, now I can go back home for not more than five days. <laughs> I like I like my diversity, yeah. I, and I like to feel that I have the freedom to go anywhere. Vanessa was able to become a wilder self that she had never met before. It's just, when I was home, like I said, I had a very um, linear path that I was going to follow. And I was kind of like a good girl that I dated the same guy and I wanted to marry him and that was it. And suddenly, I was another person. Adrian, I, I really didn't know that I could be like the bomb. It was hilarious because... I never thought that I could have a, any guy that I wanted. And I can tell you that I was eating and drinking a lot in Barcelona, so I gained a few pounds. And 
I mean, I didn't think I looked like super beautiful, but all these men were like crazy about me. So I'm like, yeah, we can go out. Yeah, for sure. I was still kind of battling with the fact that, you know, in DR, if you're if you're like going on several dates with the with several guys, you might be labeled a bit slotty. Ah. So I struggled with that um, identity. But also very soon I let it go because uh, I was far away and I can be, I can in a way reinvent myself and I was just free and happy. In Barcelona, I did so many different things. I worked at fairs. I, I started um, a catering and event company with a friend. We did a few events and I I did babysitting jobs because I really needed money. I like all of the kind of society thing that the Dominican Republic puts on people. Like they were gone for me. I did anything and everything that I could once one to have fun and two to get paid. Uh, I did not not everything to get paid, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I I would just like hustle. And it it taught me a lot. I think that after moving away from home, um, that also gave me a little more confidence in myself. Because at home, I was who I was because that's what was expected from me. And that's what I thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I was a nice girlfriend. I was a, an architecture student. I was... I, I was living at home with my with my father. I, you know, I had a very goody tushy life, and in Barcelona, I really, like I said, I could be anything and anyone that I wanted. So it, it did change a lot. Vanessa realized that there are aspects of her that will always stand true, no matter what country she's in. Well, it's just that Dominicans are usually very loud and. They, we love a big party and we love to um, make a million friends and tell people about our lives and we have no censorship. And that has never changed. I always like to talk to people and what you see is what you get. If I'm sad, you're going to know it immediately. If I'm happy, you're going to know it immediately. So my Dominican identity in that way has always been the same and I remember when I got a job in Barcelona that uh, I immediately make friends because they would make they, they would just laugh with my accent and in my head I really didn't have an accent like a Dominican accent but then I, I do everyone tells me that when I speak in Spanish That's really also part of my identity, that even though I've been out of the Dominican Republic for so many years, I still talk very Dominican. Vanessa has lived the majority of her adult life outside of the DR. So I asked her, who is she now? I have, I feel that I'm a little bit of a mix of every, every culture that I've learned, but I'm right. always Dominican. I mean, I... Now I'm an American citizen and oh, okay. still when people ask me or when I'm writing some papers or whatever, I still write down and I still respond, I'm Dominican. Mm. And I don't think, and my boyfriend sometimes says like, hey, you're American. And I'm like, I mean, oh. I, I guess my papers say that, but I feel so Dominican always. Sometimes home doesn't always show us our full potential. We can become soft, keep the grooves of a couch warm with our bodies. But because Vanessa took a leap, she was able to find freedom and flexibility that was not offered at home. This experimentation allowed her to grow into a truer self. I am a completely different person than the person I think I would have been if I would not have left the Dominican Republic. I I don't want to um say this in a in a bad way like I don't want to talk bad about my friends that still live in the Dominican Republic but uh 
but I think I am very different from them, and and I like that. I I like that I've been in so many different countries that I can appreciate difference. In the Dominican Republic, everyone wants to be the same. I am very happy that I'm not the same. Yeah. I, I want to say everyone is happy, and I'm pretty sure yeah. that I would be very happy. I'm just also very happy doing all these different things. However, the relationship with our identities don't always have to be an existential crisis. Some of us have learned how to lean into it when necessary. Alexandria from a popular Instagram page, Travel Latina, uses her racial ambiguity to her advantage when she leaves her country. She was raised in Colombia and the States and has an American husband. Alexandria is able to switch on which identity is more advantageous for her in the moment. She's able to blend in like a singular zebra joining a different dazzle. Her shape-shifting allows her to see and hear an uninhibited world. I feel like I'm a chameleon of sorts. That, that's an exciting part of feeling like I can be racially ambiguous, but also ambiguous to, as to where I'm from. <laughs> and every single Mediterranean country I've visited and they always think I'm from their country. And so, I, I mean, it's very often I'll get talked to and greeted in that language. And of course I don't know it. So I'll kind of sit there, stare at them blankly and smile and kind of say, sorry, I don't speak. Oh, you're not Grecian. Oh, you're not Turkish. So I'll get that. It's coincidence that you brought up being misinterpreted because that's something that we would talk about a lot with the community of Latina travelers that we formed was like this idea that there's a lot of perks so like getting cheaper prices, that's an example. Uh, not getting bothered down the street because you don't stand out. Just being able to observe things as a chameleon. I, I would argue that if a foreigner who is visit, like visibly, you know, they're a foreigner is in a certain space abroad or some, just any kind of community space that is not a group of people that they associate with or that they relate to, I would argue that that space might be impacted by their, just by their presence. Like they might feel obligated to act a certain way or to, you know, just like to, to not be exactly who they are because, Oh, there's a foreigner. Like we have to act normal, you know, but then if you're a chameleon and nobody notices you, you get to see how people are in their environment and that's really cool like to see and to see to be able to tell the difference to see it's interesting to see both really like when I'm with my husband it's totally different than when I'm alone just in my within my own family my my, my family especially the women in my family are just like they are all about serving the man and so they stress out so much like, are you okay? Do you need more food? Do you need this? Do you need that? They're quiet. They're like, oh, no, no, I can't say anything. I can't talk. Like they don't even want to talk because they think they're being a nuisance. So then when he's not there, it's just funny because everyone's loud and everyone's just crazy and everyone's themselves. I feel like I've experienced both spheres. I asked her, how does she describe her identity when asked directly about it? I find myself sticking up for my Colombian identity more just because I kind of feel like there, if I were to sim put this into an analogy or into a symbols, I see it as the U.S. is kind of like the, the oldest brother who's a bully. And then Colombia is like the little brother who wants to be just like the U.S. but is bullied by the U.S., and is all about trying to make things right. And so that's the way I see it. And so for me, I'm like, I just always want to stick up for the little brother because he's kind of like the underdog. He's kind of like, he's had so many things going on against that work against him, like <laughs> dating back to colonization. So, um, and I don't think people don't think 
about those things when, you know, and I, I try to be um, humble and like understanding that people don't understand that and they only see what's on the news and like, you know, Netflix, all those things. I get it. Like it, it sucked growing up and having to deal with that, those types of negative stereotypes and comments. But now that I'm older and I'm trying, I'm reached a point in my life where I'm like trying to be more understanding and not be, not snap at people and actually have a conducive conversation over like, okay, well let's, let's talk about what you think. And then I kind of try to have a insightful conversation to try to shift focus on um, how they view Colombia. Alexandria isn't only bridging cultures with her physical ambiguity. As a Latina, she recognizes that she's part of a group that holds a specific story when it comes to travel, one seeking refuge instead of relaxation. How can I empower and inspire other people to travel? And and then that just kind of like led into, oh my God, Latinas, there's nothing. I was looking around, there was nothing there on Instagram. I saw it as an amazing opportunity to inspire other Latinas to travel. Very quickly, it started attracting people would reach out to me saying, oh my goodness, thank you for starting this. Like, I thought there was no other people like me. It really still isn't very common for Latinos. It's it's starting to grow. We've attracted a lot of, yeah, just women. They're like, there's like no stories about us, no photography about our travels our adventures our experiences our challenges through travel um i think a lot of times there's an association of like immigration with traveling at least from my personal experience uh, a lot of times we would travel just to see it was mostly just to see family in colombia they would come to see us or we would go see them uh, there was always issues of immigration. Oh, we can't come because they didn't accept our visa or there's not enough money to go travel this year. Things like that were always issues. Um, I know for other families, it's like, okay, uh, we're, we got here legally in the U.S. and now I can't travel because my visa is about to expire and I submitted all the pa- the right paperwork. I did everything like I sa- I was supposed to, but they haven't gone back to me about the visa and now I'm undocumented. Like there was just always there's always this kind of like stressful history of immigration for a lot of Latino families, not everyone, but a lot. But that's a lot of times our like initial introduction to traveling it's not even so much for leisure it's more like we want to remain connected to our motherlands we want to remain connected to our families we're fleeing conflict fleeing violence people would reach out to me and say you know there's just nothing out there like for latino women to express themselves through travel and like how amazing it is to learn from traveling. Alexandria recognizes the freedom that comes with having an ambiguous identity and sees that identity is flexible. We can take control of it, twist it and turn it like silly putty, molding it into what works for us. Because identity isn't a stagnant thing. It has an original form, but can erode away and smooth as the years pass, like water over a stone. That's what Eric Truels has realized from his years of traveling. Eric originally started traveling in the 70s and hasn't stopped since, and has noticed the shifts in himself and those around him as he continues to trek with more years on his passport. My first question is, where was the first place you traveled? And what year was it? <laughs> oh, back in the 15th century in <laughs> King Arthur's court, I was... <laughs> I was a young troubadour. <laughs> yeah. right. It was 1970. I graduated in 69 with, uh, like Bob Dylan says, no direction home. I got a high draft number, and I didn't have to take a job or leave the country. 
Instead, all my friends went to either medical school or law school, nice Jewish boys from New York. But I was always interested in maps as a child, and I was hungry to see this country. In fact, right before I left in early 1970, I was living uh, sort of anonymously in a loft in downtown Soho, right on the Bowery. The Bowery is known for its winos and drunks. And I lived in the Ohm Zig loft with six foot eight Daffy and his wife, five foot one Norma. And it was so foreign to me to have thrust myself into the downtown art community of Bohemian uh, Manhattan, New York. One day, Curly Joe showed up. He was a pimply kid. He was probably two years older than me, 24. He had a guitar. He sang every folk song from Bob Dylan to Woody Guthrie. And he had, he had traveled. He could talk about Oklahoma City and the Panhandle and New Mexico and all these places I vaguely heard of and wanted to see. And I felt so inexperienced, the way Jimi Hendrix asked in those days, are you experienced? And my answer was no, I wasn't. So I was traveling for experience, uh, and that was all levels, you know, psychically, uh, psychotropically, <laughs> all, all kinds of ways, and to see this country. And I packed up a 1964 Pontiac Tempest with a camouflaged rear right fender, and I drove up and down America on the, starting on the first day of spring, 1970, when gas was still 31 cents a gallon. And I went to every city I ever heard of, and I stayed on the road for a little over six months. And quickly, I'd probably been to all 48 states other than Hawaii and Alaska during which time I probably didn't wash my long, tangled reggae Jufro hair uh, so that when I settled in Chicago in the summer of 1970 to take a dance workshop, which is something I'd never done before, but I was an artist looking in search of himself without knowing I was an artist. And I found a new part of me that was below my neck. It was my body and... Uh, kinetics and improvisation and instinct and I became a completely different person. I became a professional clown making fun out in public. I was way out there. You said that all of your friends in New York were becoming doctors and lawyers. What was their response when you were like, I'm just going to live out of this van <laughs> instead? 64 Pontiac Tempest right. named Wolfie. Wolfie, right. Uh, what was their they, response? They didn't have a response because I cut my umbilical cord to everything I ever knew. No one in the world knew where I was, including my parents and sister, but it was really hard for my parents. They had done the best job they could, but they wrapped that umbilical cord, or I felt like the umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck. There was no room to discover what I wanted, who I was, and so I really had to disappear and uh, live by my own wits and on my own little uh, wallet and uh, seat of my pants for all those months. And then for many years later, it took me a long time to reconcile with my family and any childhood friends who, at this point in my life, I'm still friendly with. Did you want to be anonymous? Did you want to just kind of get rid of that identity that you were raised with or as you kind of said was forced down your throat and were you going to kind of erase all of that? It was not my intention. The freedom of travel, which many travelers uh, talk about, is, is such that some travelers make up new identities for themselves Wherever they go, they have no history. They can say whatever they want. They can change their names. They can say, I'm a bricklayer, I'm an astronaut, whatever they want, and nobody knows the difference. Uh, that wasn't it for me. I was always myself. That's probably what I'm best at being in the world uh, and what I ended up teaching at all those years at USC, how to be oneself and find one's voice and one's passion. But I was 
an un, a volcano unknown to himself, ready to explode because I had no self-expression and no creativity. It was never encouraged, and I never explored it. So I had to cut this umbilical cord, hit the road, start to be free, and then dance gave me a venue. What is it like traveling when you're older in comparison to when you're younger? What are some things that you did more when you were younger that you wouldn't do now? And what are some things now that you do that you wouldn't have done when you were younger? You have more youthful naivete and enthusiasm to try some ridiculous things that you might not try as an older person. And certainly if you have some people to think you're supposed to take care of, you might not go so far off the beaten track. And uh, the all-night buses that I might have taken by myself when I was young, and in your case, probably couch surf, are not something uh, I do anymore. Right. Right. How do you find that the world receives you when, versus traveling younger and older? Ooh, I can tell you older, it's much different. Mm. I'm an old guy now. Uh I can also tell you something my father told me when he turned 55. I'm 30 years younger, so I was 25. I was visiting my parents' suburban home on Long Island. I was in my childhood room that had still had a, a cowboy mural of bucking Bronx and uh, cowboys. And my father poked his head in my bedroom and said, good morning. And I said, happy birthday, Dad, because that's what I was there for. He was 55. And he had said something to me like, I can't believe I'm 55 years old. That's so old. I still feel like little Joey Truels inside. And I never forgot it because that's the way it goes. You know, I don't feel emotionally or psychically that different than when I was much younger. But people treat me differently. I think they call me Mr. and Sir and uh, think I want or need certain things. And maybe I do want or need certain things that I didn't need when I was young. I was uh, a kid and it was doing a lot more crashing and adventuring and... Uh, it's different and it's the same because what's the same is if you still have the same curiosity and hunger and passion and openness, you can dis still discover an awful lot of the world that's still new and fresh and you might have heard of and certainly have never seen before. And that's still one of my greatest pleasures in life. I think the uh, the point is it's a, a state of mind uh, traveling and curiosity and openness and although your body gets older and you uh, know you're getting closer to the far side than the early side, that somehow it's up to you to keep podcasting and talking to new people and keep the brightness alive in your eyes and uh, et cetera. I hear the sounds of my shoes scuff against a wooden floor. I'm walking through the Science Museum in London. I gaze around at the exhibitions, blending our ancient alchemist discoveries and Star Trekky displays of the future. I was about two-thirds of the way through my first long backpacking trip. I'd seen so much and still had more to go. But the question that weighed heavy in my carry-on was this. Are humans all the same? Or are we different? How much of our initial identity matters if we're so similar to each other? I was miles and months from graduating college. All of the heavy literature and theories that I had been consuming like free pizza for the last four years were starting to digest in the quote-unquote real world. I continued to walk slowly through the museum until I came up against a glowing wall of code. A long screen illuminated the room with a sequence of black letters printed on it. CGTA, CGAG, CCTA, AAAT. Four letters clustered and repeated themselves in different orders. It was like seeing every combination possible for a master lock. It was an exhibit on epigenetics, a topic that was just getting some press around the early 2010s. Scientists were discovering that lying on top of our DNA, 
And please, this is a gross simplification, so bear with. But is another pair of genetic code that can be turned on or off. These switches don't change the original DNA sequence, so we won't be growing like a third ear or something. But they affect how we experience the world and how our bodies function depending on which switches are clicked. Epigenetics suggests that we aren't exactly who we're destined to be right out of the womb. We're not this untouched tabula rasa, but epigenetics can switch on and off throughout our lives and affect our health, longevity, and future generations. We have this set of fundamentals, but our environment equally influences who we become. So an example would be if we took a baby and raised it either in a loving or violent home, that would result in a slightly different person. How different? Well, I'm not the person to ask. But from my understanding, this individual would have a surge of different hormones, which would shift an epigene and make them more or less susceptible to stress in the future. Depending what you're born with, and then surrounded by, will affect you on a biochemical level. As these letters glowed across my face, I started to think, okay, so we're born with a code, but that code can change depending on our environment. And I had noticed through my travels that there were certain fundamentals that everybody seemed to want. We all wanted to have a nice home, a hot meal, a good bed, friendship, love, purposeful work, and pleasure. Everyone on the planet wanted that. But then there were these minor differences between people, beliefs, mannerisms, and lifestyles, not too dissimilar to the relationship between genes and epigenetics. A school of children swarmed around me like their fish counterparts. And then I thought, well, how different am I now, now that I've traveled? Who would I be if I didn't? And what part of me has always wanted to be a traveler? I tried to block out the hushes of other solicitors as I started to unravel my own identity, because I noticed that there were parts of me that were the same no matter where I was, that I loved telling stories and making people laugh and being kind. But then there were these parts that were plastered onto me, being a woman, an American, white. These labels also influence who I am, even though I might not see myself as such. Because these are stories that are constructed and have certain behaviors associated with them. But we're so much more than the stories that we're told. The assumptions associated with Latin women versus Asian men are very different, if not detrimental. How much of who that person is is limited because of these labels. Like they can't fully be themselves because they have to live up to these expectations of what it means to be a woman, black, gay. I mean, we know that. Throughout history, people haven't thought that women are capable of doing anything and minorities have been thought of as lesser than. But we know that isn't true. These identity labels might have done more harm than good. And I think if we have the science to analyze our own genetic makeup, then we can start to remove these labels like nail polish. It's taken me years to accept that I'm not a woman, I'm not white, I'm not an American. I'm not all of the privileges and assumptions that come with this body. I'm so much more than them. And this might be seen as a very easy thing to say given what I do look like in a world that very much believes and acts on these labels. But I wanna start creating a world where these labels start to lose some of their potency because my essence is a storyteller. You can drop me on any corner of the planet and I would want to tell you stories, listen to yours, and share them with others. That is who I am. I want to make the world gentler and take some of the pain away. And I do this through storytelling. Now you, my lovely listener, may have some other assumptions about how this whole podcast is going to go down. You might think, this white lady is going to spend a whole season telling me to move to Bali and start teaching manifestation courses. But I want to surprise you. I'm not going to give you to-do lists. I'm not going to give you travel hacks. I'm not going to tell you how to live on $30 a day. I am going to give you stories. I'm going to give you honesty, which hopefully will give you some inspiration. Travel is not as simple as the saturated Instagram photos. It is as tangled as the identities we carry through the world. It is hard and complicated and joyous at the same time. Together, we're going to untie this Gordian knot, one string at a time. This season will explore every stage we experience as we travel. 
We're gonna get lost, fall in love, eat new food, take long bus rides, receive kindness from strangers, be attacked by animals, get inspired to make the world better, and eventually make our way back home. So now that we've landed in new territory, we need to figure out, where are we? 